Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, Bill Werner catches us up on the latest at the state legislature. Tasha Radel looks into the challenges facing grocery store owners in rural Minnesota. And Mike Grimm looks back on another championship season for the Gopher women's hockey team. But first... The Hennepin County Attorney's Office has concluded that criminal charges are not warranted against either Officer Mark Ringenberg or Officer Dustin Schwartz. And with those words, Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman made official what many had been anxiously questioning since the November death of 24-year-old Jamar Clark. Clark, an African-American, was shot and killed after a scuffle with two white officers as he confronted paramedics who were putting his injured girlfriend into an ambulance. In the wake of Clark's shooting, accounts of what happened that night varied greatly. Witnesses said Clark was handcuffed when he was shot. Officials disputed that and said Clark was going for one of the officer's guns. In his announcement, about the decision not to charge the officers, Freeman detailed events leading up to Clark's shooting. Freeman said during a struggle with Clark, Officer Ringenberg repeatedly told Officer Schwartzy, he's got my gun. He says Ringenberg felt Clark's whole hand on the gun. Schwartzy dropped his handcuffs and took out his gun. Schwartzy said he put the gun to the edge of Clark's mouth and said, let go or I'm going to shoot you. Schwartzy recalls Clark looking directly at him and saying, quote, I'm ready to die. Schwartz, he said the, quote, only thing I could think of to do was to save our lives and everyone else in the immediate area, so I pulled the trigger. Freeman said Clark was shot just a minute after officers arrived on the scene, and ultimately Freeman said the evidence showed Clark was not handcuffed at the time of the shooting and his DNA was on Officer Ringenberg's duty belt and gun grip. Reaction from community activists and Clark family members to Freeman's decision was immediate and impassioned. We will not go in a corner and cry. We're going to stand forward and rise for justice. We're going to take to the streets. We don't believe the fairy tale that Mike Freeman wove. The only thing that Mike Freeman said that was true today was his name. You, Mr. Freeman, did not give a fair and accurate portrayal of what took place with your investigation. Today you pushed propaganda. And let me tell you, if the city burns, it's on your hands. Pastor Danny Givens said Freeman painted his own picture. As to set up the stage as a, as a, as a platform of thought insertion to have, to have your mind be prone to see what he wants you to see, right. rather than allow the, the, the community and the public and Jamar Clark's family to view the tapes with their own unbiased eyesight. The Minneapolis NAACP's Nakima Levy-Pound said Minneapolis police were first on scene and the investigation was unfair from the beginning. According to the witnesses, they quickly cleaned up the blood. They didn't even have police tape out there. They didn't have a forensic van out there. And they waited at least 45 minutes before they began to interview any witnesses. And that was after beginning to intimidate people by pointing guns at them and spraying them with mace and shoving them. And Jamar Clark's cousin Cameron told reporters, My cousin didn't tell no officer, I, I'm, kill me. He would have just committed suicide. Why would he want the cops to kill him to go out that type of way? I know my cousin, so they had to put a story together. It took them four months to put a story together. Cameron Clark alleges the police shot his cousin because Jamar had filed a suit against the 4th Precinct. That's a claim other activists also made following Freeman's decision. In the days leading up to Freeman's announcement, Minneapolis Police Chief Janae Harteau posted a video anticipating potential violence resulting from the decision. We will not allow people to jeopardize the safety of others by causing massive disruptions and hindering emergency vehicles from helping those in need. The MPD has to and will strike a balance between First Amendment rights with the safety of everyone. The NAACP's Levy Pounds responded that the police need to be held accountable for their actions and We are ready for a change. 
in our city and in our state. We're ready for equity. We're ready for the disparities to be closed. And we're ready for our humanity to be acknowledged. In her response to the county attorney's investigation, Mayor Betsy Hodges praised Freeman for his transparency. Hodges said that she understands the hurt, anger, and disappointment felt in light of the decision, but added that the job of the city of Minneapolis is to keep everyone safe. As for what happens next, Levy Pound says... Well... The bottom line is that we're going to continue to mobilize our community to fight for justice. We need the entire system to be transformed so that the misconduct of officers is not continuing to be rubber stamped, which it has for decades. Um, today was a reinforcement of why we've taken to the streets, why we've protested, why we've demonstrated, and why we've refused to be silent in the face of injustice. We know that it is a marathon and not a sprint. The civil rights movement of the 1960s lasted for 13 years, and we're just in the early stages of phase two of the civil rights movement. Is there something specific that you would be asking for or that you would be uh, protesting about here? Is there a focused message? Well, at the end of the day, we still want to see justice. And we know that, according to Jamar Clark's family, there can be no justice for him because he's never going to come back to life um, based on having been killed by officers. But if the system begins to become transformed, where people are no longer being criminalized for petty offenses, where officers are not allowed to kill with impunity, then we would feel that that was some semblance of justice. Mayor Hodges says moving forward. In addition to the independent investigation by the BCA, the chief and I requested a separate federal investigation by the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Once that investigation has been completed, the Civil Rights Division and U.S. Attorney will determine whether the federal government will bring any charges. Once that investigation concludes, MPD will thoroughly review all available evidence from the independent investigations and will be able to make a decision regarding discipline. What remains is a city largely divided by the death of Jamar Clark, the events of November 15th, and the racial disparities that community members, lawmakers, and law enforcement officials all seem to agree exist. And for now, the struggle to find common ground continues. More Minnesota Matters after this. As a young teenage boy, I didn't even know what autism was. How do you even spell that? A few years later, I heard that a friend's cousin's son had been diagnosed with autism. I still wasn't sure what that really meant. When I went to college, my roommate's brother had autism. When I moved to the city for work, my best friend called me and told me his son had been diagnosed with autism. We were both in shock. I still remember the day I walked into the house and saw that look on my wife's face. I knew something was wrong. I'll never forget how I felt when she said, our son has autism. Autism is getting closer to home. Today, one in 110 children is diagnosed with autism. That's a 600% increase in the last 20 years. Learn the signs at AutismSpeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Minnesota lawmakers are back at the state capitol after a quick break for Easter, and now deadlines are looming in what will be an unusually short legislative session. 
MNN's Bill Werner has been covering the proceedings. Bill, what's getting the most attention? Scott, a lot of issues are on lawmakers' plates because this week is the first committee deadline when bills, in order to stay alive, need to clear all the required committees in either the House or the Senate. There are a myriad of items, but some issues do float to the top. Among them, should Minnesota driver's licenses comply with the federal government's real ID requirements? A number of years ago, the legislature said no, but the feds now say unless the state does, Minnesotans in 2018 will no longer be able to use their driver's licenses to board commercial flights. The Minnesota House this week followed the Senate's lead, passing a bill that takes the first step toward Real ID compliance by allowing state agencies to research various options. That's something that current state law prohibits. House Republican Majority Leader Joyce Pepin says she has some concerns about privacy issues, but she says it's not a question of whether lawmakers are comfortable with it. The federal government is requiring that we do this, and we want to make sure our constituents are able to fly and to get into federal buildings. And I mean, I remember the debate at that time. It had a lot to do with the privacy uh, concern that we still have, and that's that's certainly still a concern. And so we're going to look to try to balance the, the privacy concerns out with what the federal government is requiring us to do. St. Paul Democrat Carlos Mariani does not like the way things are going, but is taking what could be called a pragmatic stance on the issue. I really do believe the federal government has an incredible overreach in regards to personal information, uh, data privacy uh, that's collected on, on driver's license that is going to make its way out into the broader world. Now we know that's already happening in this age of digital uh, information, uh, but you know, uh, for the federal government to um, basically create a mechanism by which it can forever, you know, at the whim of a bureaucrat um, in, in Washington. Washington, D.C., decide what additional information should be collected on a driver's license, which then winds up in some central depository, if you will, uh, which then can be accessed by other folks, is really concerning for me. Having said all that, uh, I think we're going to have to swallow this. You know, the, the federal government is being very coercive uh, with states. Uh, of course, they threaten us, the uh, inability for our, our citizens and driver license holders to be able to get on planes with, with uh, Minnesota driver's license. Um, we don't want that to happen. You know, there's not much we can do about that. So we're going to have to come to some kind of an accommodation with the federal government on this. Uh, I hope that it would be uh, in a way where we can carve out our ability to still uh, uh, create the kind of licenses that work for us, even if they're not used for the federal government, and that we control as best as we can the data privacy that's being collected. House Speaker Republican Kurt Dowd was asked whether the new driver's licenses will prevent terrorism and make people safer. You know, I, I, I think we hope that it will. Uh, you know, I think Minnesotans, obviously, uh, this has become an issue that Minnesotans have a very keen sense of an interest in uh, because Minnesotans want to be able to get on an airplane and they want to be able to use their Minnesota driver's license to do that. If folks, you know, in Minnesota have to jump through a couple of extra hoops to, to feel a little bit safer as they travel, I think that's uh, acceptable. Republicans say they expect actual changes for driver's licenses approved by the end of this legislative session, but Democrats question whether it will happen. Another issue that's popped up this week is whether local communities should be able to restrict where high-risk sex offenders can live after they're released from prison. State Corrections Commissioner Tom Roy warned lawmakers giving communities that option is not a good way to go. No study has concluded that residency restrictions are an effective management tool for sex offenders in the community. Residency restrictions create barriers to effective supervision. 
Restrictions have caused the number of homeless sex offenders to rise dramatically over the past decade. Currently in Minnesota, there are 47 level three sex offenders who are off of supervision who are registered as homeless. They also have, these restrictions also have the unintended consequences of increasing the concentration of sex offenders, as we have heard, in disadvantaged neighborhoods, increasing social isolation from support networks and family, education and treatment. And they move offenders further away from supervision resources. I also need to assure you that residents and the proposed release plans for these offenders are scrutinized at the highest levels. If in fact there is a, uh, a tenuous situation in terms of, of residency, if there's children present in an apartment, if they are nearby, those, res those release plans are not approved. Vernon Center Republican Tony Cornish has a different view. It started out by responding to the issue of released sex offenders becoming homeless. First of all, we didn't make these guys commit these crimes. So I have a hard time having any tears for somebody that we can't find a place for. And what you're not taking into account is peace of mind of people in the community. Um, sure, you can talk about recidivism, how much they recidivate and what restrictions do any good, but you gotta think about home property values. You gotta think about the mother that uh, worries about her kid walking to the playground, and they really don't pay much attention to your statistics of recidivism. So there's a whole bunch of other, other factors to, to figure. Um, and and you folks aren't doing a bang up job right now of placing these people. Minnesota Lake, a very small ag community out in the middle of nowhere in my district, and they send a black person down there, a level three sex offender, in a totally white Anglo town. Stuck out like, uh, uh, out of nowhere and all of a sudden you've got all eyes on this poor person down there that you're worrying about recidivism all this pressure and you how that could have happened I don't know one of a plethora of issues on state lawmakers minds Scott as sponsors try to keep their bills alive as key deadlines approach thank you Bill Minnesota Matters returns after this you wanted to see me yes please have a seat so here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team. But I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. <sighs> we want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Last night, we put on an epic light show. Yeah, we did. The crowd loved us. We love the crowd. Wait, but there were only four people out there. Yeah, but did you see their four faces? All eight of their eyes lit up brighter than ours. <sighs> and we're fireflies. Yeah, we are. 
Hey, that one girl, she looked like she'd never seen glow in the dark like this before, and we invented glow in the dark. Yeah, we invented it. And we're going to be out here every night rocking out our light show at a forest near you. So come check us out. Check us out. And bring your kid all ages show. Oh, but uh, don't bring any of those glass jars because they make us kind of nervous. Yeah, and I'm super claustrophobic. Whether you're rocking their world or they're rocking yours, some memories never fade. Come alive with the forest. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a forest near you and discover other cool things to do when you go, like fishing, biking, or even camping. Visit discovertheforest.org. See you later. Yeah, see you soon. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A University of Minnesota grocery store survey shows serious challenges for many rural Minnesota communities. MNN's Tasha Radel explains. The survey, which was designed by the University of Minnesota Regional Sustainable Development Partnerships, was initiated to better understand rural grocers' business conditions and the overall store climate. Now, among the more notable findings was the fact that 62% of respondents intend to own their grocery store for 10 more years or less and then close the doors. Joining me now is Katherine Drager, U of M Statewide Director of Regional Sustainable Developments. Catherine, let's talk a little bit about the makeup of the survey in general. We were very happy to be um, doing the first ever survey of uh, rural grocers in Minnesota, a survey that was just dedicated to that business sector. And there's nearly 300 rural grocery stores throughout greater Minnesota and that we were looking specifically at towns with populations of 2,500 or lower. And uh, we found that there were a number of, you know, things that these grocers had in common and a number of barriers that they were facing. Um, We have just released the first of what's going to be a series of fact sheets. And this first one really just talked about the business characteristics and kind of the business environment that these grocery stores are working on, working in. So we found that, um, you know, while the majority of these grocery stores are privately owned, I think we can all kind of think of those as kind of the mom and the pop grocery shops. So these really are those small town stores that are usually uh, family run. But we are seeing that there is a number of those grocers, in fact, it looks like about two-thirds of them, that are going to be trying to transition out of their business in the next 10 years. Um, and while we can see that this is a trend that's coming down, coming down the pike, um, a number of those businesses actually don't have transition plans in place. And I think that's contributing to uh, the loss of rural grocery stores that we're seeing in uh, small towns in Minnesota. So, Catherine, why are grocery store operators, I guess, just getting out of the business and, and closing their doors and, and I guess not having a plan in place to kind of carry on the business to the next generation? We're still kind of collecting that data because there really hasn't been a centralized way to collect when a, a rural grocery store uh, is shuttered or closed or go out, goes out of business. But we are contacted by a number of communities that, having lost their grocery store, they're really desperate to open it back up. And what we see and what the industry, you know, says, while we may not have research to date to back this up, but this is this is what we're hearing, is that once those grocery stores are closed, it is very difficult to reopen them. Um, we're looking at other business models for owning them. Um, you know, in addition to the mom and pop shops, people 
stores that are privately and family owned? How does a community uh, owned grocery store function or a cooperative? Um, and so we really think that there's a need for uh, looking into what the different um, business structures can be for these stores, especially as we see the number that are interested in, in transitioning out of this business. Now, does aging infrastructure play a role in some of these uh, store closures? That's a very good question. So infrastructure-wise, you can see that this first, uh, first fact sheet we put on shows that a lot of the buildings are aging in in these rural grocery stores. You, you're seeing the aging of, of Main Street, Minnesota, and so that, that probably contributes to it as well, that these are buildings, many of which are over 50 years old. And so they're definitely facing some of those infrastructure needs. I think that we've also seen that there's more and more competition with large chain grocery stores. And as, as um, mobile as people are, if you work in a regional center, then often you'll pick up all your groceries in that regional center and maybe you just buy milk and bananas and toilet paper at the local grocery store. Um, so, so these groceries said that competition with large change grocery stores is a is either a a major challenge or a minor challenge. In fact, 97% of grocery store owners said that that was a major or minor challenge. Of course, there's high um, operating costs, and then you combine that with narrow profit margins. It makes uh, running a rural grocery store, you know, a very um, you know, a very challenging business to be in in this time. You know, I think sometimes people really take for granted their local grocery store and maybe don't really feel that void of it being gone until it's too late. Would you agree? We know that rural grocers are an important part of small towns in Minnesota and that having that anchor store on Main Street um, is important to community well-being for a number of reasons. You know, access to healthy food, especially for people in the community who are less mobile, um, supporting local um, other local institutions, whether that's the food shelf or the hospital or the school, because we see that a lot of those institutions do um, buy food from their rural grocery stores. Um, and then just having a, a vital small town in a place where the community can gather, um, rural grocery stores serve all those needs for, for Minnesota. Well, thanks again to my guest, Catherine Drager, Statewide Director of U of M Regional Sustainable Developments. For more information on the Rural Grocery Store Report and survey, you can go to extension.umn.edu. Again, that's extension.umn.edu. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. So you see, son, good manners are very, very important. Someday, many years from now, when you're a grown-up, you'll be a man. And when you are, you should be a gentleman. Do you want me to go through it one more time? Yes. Yes, please. Yes, please. Exactly. Always say please, thank you, you're welcome, and excuse me. Sit up straight, hold doors open for ladies. If a door's shut, then knock first. Don't burp, don't swear, don't speak with a mouthful, don't reach across people's plates, keep your elbows off the table. What tape? And don't interrupt. While we're at it, don't stare, don't use foul language, don't call people names, but do remember people's names. Always share your toys, play nice, and cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze. On the bus, give up your seat to anyone who has trouble standing. Bottom line, treat others the way you'd like to be treated. Got it? Got it. And stop picking your nose. Most parenting is hard to do in just two minutes. But spending just two minutes twice a day making sure they brush their teeth is easier and could help save them from a lifetime of tooth pain. 
For fun two-minute videos to watch while brushing, visit 2men2x.org. That's 2men2x.org. A message from the Partnership for Healthy Miles, Healthy Lives, and the Ag Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The University of Minnesota women's hockey team cemented itself as a college powerhouse with its national championship winning game a week ago Sunday. The Golden Gophers knocked off previously unbeaten Boston College in the national title game 3-1. Minnesota has now won four of the past five championships, and MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm sat down with one of the best players ever to don the maroon and gold. Scott, Gopher women's hockey player Hannah Brandt of Vadnais Heights is a record-setting forward for Minnesota. She completed her four-year hockey career with 285 points. That's more than any Gopher ever, and the second most of any women's college hockey player ever. She has more assists than any Gopher, and the second most goals of any Gopher. And most importantly, in four years, she has three championship rings. A dynasty indeed. Yeah, it's been a crazy past few days, I guess. Um, uh, since that Wisconsin game, that was um, definitely a high for our team, and just continuing on um, still still in awe when we get to see the trophy. You've won three national titles in your four years here, and uh, this was maybe the first year that you weren't as a team favored heading into the Frozen Four. Did that change the mentality of the team heading out to New Hampshire last week? Yeah, it's different. I mean, uh, we were a three seed going in. We had just gotten beat by Wisconsin, so um, and they had won the league in the tournament this year. Um, so... Yeah, I think we kind of like embraced that role of the underdog, but we also knew um, we knew that we are just as good as them and we could beat them on any day. So Yeah, and that you guys have always kind of thrived at this time of year, so it wasn't as if, I mean, you may have been the underdog, but it wasn't as if you guys felt like you had to climb a big mountain, right? If you played your game, you were going to have a good chance. Yeah, that's, and that's what our coaches told us. They said, um, we know if you guys play as good as you guys can play, um, work hard, um, you guys will be fine. Your head coach, Brad Frost, has often talked about the culture of the program. Certainly you have high-level players over the course of this dynasty now, this five-year run that you've made the national title game, but there's a, a culture of accountability, of having fun, of doing the important things right. Uh, is, is there something to that? Do you, do you What your coach preaches, do you believe in that and live that? Yeah, I, I think um, that's just as important as anything we do on the ice is everything, we're, all, everything that we believe in and what we're doing and um, – how we conduct ourselves is just um, what makes us so good, I think, and um, and then it carries over on the ice the way we play with passion and toughness. So I think it shows with the trophy. You um, on this team with the addition of Amanda Kessel late, who of course missed two years with uh, the concussion uh, symptoms and and all of that, have uh, with your stats and her stats and certainly others on the team, you know, some of the all-time great players. Um, but I thought Amanda, heading into the Frozen Four, mentioned something that nobody cares who scores, just that you score. I mean, take us through that and, and how that maybe also led to success. Yeah, I mean, when you're in the Frozen Four, you you don't care who scores. If it's our goalie scoring, if it's the other team scoring for us, it doesn't matter. I mean, um, but Amanda stepped up, got a couple big goals in each game, and same with Sarah. So, I mean, that was good, but um didn't really matter who it was at that point. All right, now I want you to take me back to, uh, do you remember the first time you put skates on? I mean, think about this as a culmination of your college career here. Um, when was it? How old were you? Uh, did you know at that moment that uh, this was kind of the trek, if uh, the good Lord let you, this was the trek you'd want to take? Yeah, I was. well, I think I was about five, and I, I had a friend that played and just got into it, I guess. And I just, I, I don't remember the first time I put on skates, but I remember one time I was out at the Oval in Roseville, and 
I, I was crying because my feet hurt so bad, and I, I think I said to my dad I wanted to be done. But that's the only bad memory I ever have, and for some reason I still have that one. But I, I remember always, and my parents would probably uh, say this too, I was always out in the driveway rollerblading, shooting pucks. Um, I just loved playing, and um, that's, I think, what has allowed me to be successful because I've enjoyed every second of it, and um, if you're doing something you love, it's easy to be good at it. At what point did you realize, yeah, this is, you know, I'm one of the better players here on the ice, and was it right away when you got in uh, on the ice and uh, uh, and it led to this? Um, I don't know. I guess I never really – I think I always kind of, like, downplayed everything. Um, my high school coach would get so mad at me because he would always ask me what my goals were, and apparently they were never good enough, <laughs> and he's always pushing me to be better, which – um, I think also helped me be really successful, so I appreciate that. When you were real young, um, I know it, it's popular now. Did you play on boys' teams back uh, when you were when you were young? I played when I first started. I had to play mites because that was all there was. There was no eight and under or anything. So I played mites for a year or two, and then I went over to girls and I played girls all the way up. But I did play up a couple years, but that was about it. When um, when now, as you look back, uh, obviously winning national titles and, and all of that, what what's the fondest memory or two uh, for your career here at Minnesota? Well, this is definitely up there. This one was pretty fun. Uh, the perfect season was awesome, and it was crazy. I didn't think we could um, top a year like that or a feeling like that, but this is pretty good, even though it's not a perfect season. This felt unbelievable. So the national championships are obviously up there, but I think just the little things that happen on a daily basis, um, just – the meals, the jokes that go around, it's just fun to be a part of this team. The national title trophy, as we mentioned, is, is sitting right in front of us. You've you've spent uh, basically every existing minute since you've won it. Uh, it's it's staying right now, at least in, in, in your apartment, is that right? Yeah, it doesn't really ever leave our site except when it has to go and do appearances. Uh, Mandy, our media lady, um, kind of took her for a little bit from us, but um, that was about it. We we keep a good good eye on her. Very good. Congratulations. Continued success. Thank you very much. That's Hannah Brandt, Golden Gopher Women's Hockey Champion on Minnesota Matters. Scott? Thank you, Mike. That's going to do it for this week. Thanks for listening. Tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.